All right, everybody, why don't we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. So this is a great privilege that once again to do this. Why don't we stand and read the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, in all purity. Let's pray. Father, as we always are accustomed to at Genesis House, it doesn't matter whether we have one verse or two verses or 20 verses, you have something to say to us. And I pray, God, that you would uh, help us understand your word this morning. Uh, remove anything from my thoughts or my minds that aren't uh, from uh, the truth. And may your Holy Spirit speak through me and use me for the edification of your body. And uh, we look forward to our time together as people who love you and want to know you more. So help us to... Um, understand and to come to the, the reality of your truth, Lord, and not just so that we can hear the word, but that we would do it. And this is obviously a, very applicable to those in spiritual leadership in our church and also um, would extend to the, the people who aren't because there's principles for all of us in here we need to learn. So we look forward to our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome back to the letter of 1 Timothy. you remember that last time we gathered together, we finished a little mini-series within the letter that I titled Serving Christ with Excellence, in which we looked at six different qualities that both Timothy and, by extension, uh, you and I were to possess in order to be good servants of the Lord. Today, as we continue in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we'll be looking at a new concern for Paul in regard to Timothy's spiritual oversight while in Ephesus, uh, his concern over his relationship to the different members, both in age and gender, within the church community. Specifically, though, in confronting sin with those who are different age and gender for, from him. And really, Paul gives us two instructions here on how we're to do this. So let's dive right in and waste no time. Uh, the first thing that really you can see in verses 1 through 2 is that Paul's instruction to Timothy was really to do this in confrontation. When he was to con confront someone or correct someone who was in error, he was to approach every member, regardless of age, regardless of gender, as if they were their own biological family. In confrontation, he was to approach every single person, regardless of stage of life, as if it was his own immediate family. And we pick this up in verses 1 and 2, where he says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father, to the younger women as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So this idea of sharply rebuking, but rather appealing, extends to all people within the church. Now the fact that Paul uses a metaphor of a family to describe the church should come as no surprise to us, because earlier on in the letter, in chapter 3, verse 15, he described the church as being God's household. The same use, word used in describing qualifications of elders who had to manage their own households well. So we've already seen this family type language used in, in 1 Timothy. And 
obviously metaphors are, are, are popular of the New Testament writers in describing the spiritual realities of the church. Um, the church is also described in the, in the New Testament as being a holy nation, uh, being described as a temple, described as a field, uh, being a priesthood, and being the bride, and so on. But here Paul wants Timothy to think of the church as a family. And the reason for this, I would suggest, is because the Bible assumes that family has a closeness and an intimacy and a strong bond that's beyond normal relationships. Yes, there's exceptions to this. Uh, we may have experienced a, a poor family biologically. Um, even within the Bible, uh, relationally, like Joseph and his brothers um, didn't have a great relationship initially. The brothers rejected him and treated him poorly. Uh, David with his sons, his sons were at war with one another and so on. And even David's own son went to war against him. So again, there are exceptions to the rule. But the Bible assumes, and so do we, that the, the, there's a closeness and a bond in immediate family that is normal and goes beyond the exceptions of other relationships. Proverbs 18.24 makes this clear. He says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So here, the key is this. In this proverb, the, pro the brother is used as the top tier of relationships or the benchmark by which to gauge friendships. And it's amazing blessing, this, the, the, the writer says, when um, someone who can, f can find a friend that exceeds or meets that even of a brother. So Timothy then is to approach every member in the church this way when confronting them. Now this would be important due to his position as one in spiritual authority. If you have a spiritual authority over people and you have to confront error, there's this tendency, potential temptation to rise up that you're in that position of superiority. So, so you could come down hard on someone or to use that as a, as a trump card. Um, but when you come to each one as a family member, it serves as an attitude check. It serves as, uh, it makes you consider your manner when confronting those who strayed away from God's way. Now, in the case of Timothy, in the context of the letter, remember, a lot needed to be addressed in Ephesus. In chapter 1 and 4, there was wrong, they had adopted wrong doctrine that went against the gospel. In chapter 2 and verse 8, the, there was wrath and dissension in the church, hence his command to men to lift up, lift up holy hands as a, as a sign of dependency on God instead of do, having a sign like this where it's a fist uh, showing dissension between each other. Uh, chapter 2, verse 9, there's a preoccupation with the women in uh, flaunting their wealth and their outward beauty. In chapter 2, verse 15, there's women forsaking their role in motherhood. Uh, chapter 4, they're forsaking marriage and creating division but not eating certain foods amongst each other. And in chapter 5, we're going to uncover this soon, but there's men in the church that are not providing for their own families. So there's a lot for Timothy to deal with in the church of Ephesus. Now knowing Timothy has this tough task ahead of him, Paul gives further instruction. Not only is, his, is he to view each member as a family, but he's to follow a key principle found in verse 1 when going to speak to them. Notice there, he's not to sharply rebuke an older man or woman or younger man or younger sister, not to rebuke at all in, sharp, in a sharp context, but to appeal to them. 
Some of you might have the word uh, exhort or encourage there. So they're not to sharply rebuke when they go to confront, but they're to appeal. Now when I began studying this word rebuke, I was kind of worried at first. I felt like there was a contradiction in the, in the scripture. <laughs> and we know there never can be, but at first it seemed that way. Because I remembered in, the, in Paul's second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he actually says that you are to rebuke people. I'll read it to you. In, in 4.2 he says this, Preach the word, be ready in and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and teaching. Jesus himself also rebuked the disciples. In chapter 9, of, uh, verse 55 in Luke, he calls, when the disciples want to call down fire and lightning on the Samaritans, it says that Jesus rebuked them. So at first it seemed like to me like this sort of contradiction, because here he's saying don't rebuke, but then in other places he's saying do rebuke. Well, a word study really helped me here. Understanding the original Greek language is very important because I realized that two different words were being used in the letter. The word in chapter uh, 4, verse 2 in 2 Timothy, and in Luke 9:55, had to do with assessing a, a penalty upon somebody or reprimanding somebody. But the one in chapter 5, verse 1 is different. It's only used two times in the New Testament. And it has a, it's always in reference to striking or violence. The Greek word literally means to be a giver of blows. To be the giver of blows. But it also, as a second part to the definition, means not to, to chide someone, which is to scold somebody. When you put this all together, it helps you understand Paul's instruction to Timothy. Yes, of course, it's, not a, it's a warning, literally, not to strike people in confrontation. But if you think of Timothy's character, what we've learned, I doubt he's likely going to be tempted to go around punching older women or younger women when they don't listen to him when he confronts sin. And of course, we do know stories of people that resort to violence in the church, but this is, this is not, I don't believe, Paul's primary use of the word. But we also can't ignore that it does mean the striker or giver of blows. So what I suggest, and I think what Paul's really saying here, in fact, I wouldn't even suggest that, I, I believe this to be true. He's saying this, Timothy, when you go to correct someone, don't get to the point that you're so hot under the collar, that you're so emotionally charged, that to the point that you lose your cool. You lose your cool. You're at the point where you want to be violent with people. And you strike them with your words, words that cut, words that hurt, that are of no benefit in, pr in producing a repentant heart. This is the kind of warning he's speaking against. Instead, he's to appeal to them. Now this is a really cool word. It's used in different places in Timothy. It's used in chapter 1 verse 3 in the place of instruction. So to appeal is to instruct. In chapter 2 verse 1, he says, I urge that prayers be made for all men. Urge is the same word as appeal. In chapter 4 verse 13, we read this last time together, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Exhortation is the same word. And we know what this word meant. It meant to persuade someone, to encourage someone. Hence why in some of your translations, you actually have the word encourage instead of appeal in your Bibles. But there's two places in the Scripture that are really cool 
to really narrow down what this word even means even more. You know, one occurs in John 14, and one occurs in Romans 15. And do you know what the word appeal is used of in those places? The word appeal there is used to describe the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in Romans chapter 15. Look at your PowerPoint with me and look at these, look at these words. John 14 verse 16. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. That word helper is the same Greek word, the root word, not the full word, but the root word as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the word appeal, same Greek word, paraclete. Amazing. Okay, chapter uh, verse 26, But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Look at the role of the Spirit, to teach, to bring to remembrance. We also know that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict, to be a counselor, and to strengthen. These are In John 16, he talks about these things as well. So again, when you think of the Holy Spirit's role in terms of how He comes into affecting our lives, He teaches us. He brings to remembered scriptures. He counsels us. He convicts us. He basically helps us embrace a life of holiness. He comes alongside to, to, make, to strengthen us to, to pursue our life in commitment to Christ in a greater way. This is the same word as he's talking about in terms of what a rebuke is to do when you go and speak to someone. And that's what it is to appeal to someone. You come alongside them. You want to strengthen them. You want to, to uh, convict if necessary. You counsel them on how to live a life of holiness. In John 15.4, it's used, again, the same word, appeal, in relation to the Scriptures. For whatever has, was written in former days was written for our instruction and through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures. The word encouragement there, same word, appeal. That we might have hope. Again, you know the role and the importance in the believer's life of Scripture. It, it teaches you. It, con, it convicts you. It encourages you. It strengthens you to live a life committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see now the principle that Timothy is to live out within the church. In, in confronting sin, he's not to be so emotionally unglued that he becomes offensive. He responds in anger. But he's to come alongside someone in the way that would help them, to strengthen them, to convict them if necessary, and encourage them the same way the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures would. Now, just like in our immediate family, sometimes that can be accomplished with a simple, gentle word. You know, I'll give you an example. Let's say, uh, Steph I see Stephanie in my eyesight. Stephanie and I are talking, and uh, we're, um, I'll just pick Pat. But we're just, we're, we're speaking something maybe that's, that's, that's on the gossip side about Pat. And the Spirit comes in and convicts one of us and says this, you know, uh, you know Andrew, or maybe Stephanie says this to me. She says, Andrew, I think we're bordering on the line of gossip here. You know, and so that's a gentle word. And, and it's, a right, it's a right word if we are in fact doing that. That's a gentle word. And so we, I say to her, yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. We are, boarding, we are gossiping about him and we, we need to stop. And we move on. So that's a gentle correction. But there are times when something is much sterner, something much sterner and harsh is required. This is important because to appeal to a father and to a mother and a younger brother and so on, it's not just about niceties all the time. Just like in a regular family, sometimes there has to be some harsh 
uh, and true hard conversations with some strong some strong words said. See, there are other biblical types of rebukes in line with what's being said in chapter five, verse one. And I want to share some of them with you in the scriptures. And I also want to talk about how to um, deal with these because sometimes there are there are appropriate relational steps that are, be, are to be taken once rebukes are, are given and confrontation and sin is done. So it's not just the same uh, cookie cutter response and types of work to every single situation. There are differences and there's a sliding scale. There's like a spectrum of of the types of rebukes and severities in terms of the discipline that occur and they're all in line with chapter 5 verse 1 because remember the, here in 5 1 the principle is this it's not that you can't rebuke it's not your, it's like you're not to lose your cool in your rebuke and respond with cutting and angry words to the point that you even want to get violent remember Jesus flipped over tables he never sinned that was a rebuke. That has to be in line with chapter 5, verse 1. Has to be. Otherwise, he, he can't. he's the teacher of Paul, and Paul's teaching Timothy. That has to fit into this category. Otherwise, there's a contradiction in the Word of God. But Jesus never lost his cool. What he did was he, he would have responded in anger, but it was in the right way. He would still have been able to... Um, fulfill the, the mandate of 1 Timothy. Alright. So, I'm going to suggest um, that there's two ways to look at this. And we're, we're going to talk about sins committed by People like yourselves, like I guess it's they use the word lay people in, in our Christian context, or the the the, the, the normal churchgoer, that the, the Christian. There's there's commands on how to deal with rebukes with people like yourself, but there's also rebukes that are appropriate for people in leadership who are in the spiritual authority in the church, and they're to be handled differently. So let's first talk about sins committed by people who are not in spiritual leadership. If it's a one-off sin, if it's a one-off sin, meaning like it's not a pattern in your life, but you happen to sin that day against another brother or sister or something like that, and it's uncovered, the protocol for dealing with that is found in Matthew 18. And it's on your, it's on your, your uh, sheet there. He says, if, here's what you do if it's a one-off sin in terms of rebuking someone. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So you go to them privately. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they do not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Again, this is private. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, in, in like a private situation. Step three, if they refuse to listen, now you go to the church, the leadership, and tell them. And if there's still no repentance in that person, at that point there's an excommunication that's to occur. Um, they're to treat them as a, a pagan or a tax collector. But notice on a one-off, the first protocol in the rebuke is to go to them privately. It's different if it's an embraced sin. What do you mean by embraced? A pattern. This person has, has, uh, has um, basically succumbed to a pattern in their life 
that is consistent in their life and has not been broken. And they haven't been repentant. At this point, we're told in their rebuke not to associate with those people and they're to be removed from the fellowship. 1 Corinthians 5 says this, 9-11. to I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Again, a disassociation as a form of rebuke when someone has embraced a pattern of sin, has been confronted, and they will not repent. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. The situation there is there are men in the church who are able-bodied and have the strength to work. They refuse to work even though they're able-bodied and have the strength to do so. Here's what Paul says. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them (laughs) so that he will be put to shame. But don't regard him as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. So again, there's a disciplinary process, but there's a, there's, a, there's a reason for it, which we're going to get to in a second. So that again, difference between one-offs and embrace patterns. But there's another category. There's actually sin that's been embraced in the public worship setting. So these things have been done outside the church service. There's things that are done inside the corporate meeting of the church that also create quite severe uh, rebukes. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 there's factions going on there's factions in the church and there are uh, uh, um, an elite versus non-elite issue going on where uh, people who are wealthy and have a lot are, eat, are eating and drinking in the communion services and letting their fellow brothers and sisters go hungry they're even getting drunk during the services during the communion services and Paul says this he says just so you know, for this reason, many among you are sick and are weak. And God has actually judged you and taken your life, taken some of your lives. God brought severe judgment when the sin was done in the corporate service. It was a severe issue for that. That was a major rebuke. Physical loss of health and the loss of life. So that's how it looks in terms of sins committed by lay people. These are all different forms of rebukes and they come in different severities depending on the severity of the sin done. How about for a leader? How does it look for a leader? Well, it's a harsher form of correction initially than the lay person. If a leader like myself sins in a public setting, we're rebuked publicly in front of the church. Do you remember Paul and Peter in Galatians chapter 2? Peter had made it a habit of, um, well, he, remember, God gave him a vision. You can go to Gentiles, they're not unclean. So Paul, or Peter in his initial ministry is associating with Gentiles. He's hanging out with them, eating their foods, uh, developing friendships. Jewish people show up in Antioch who come from Jerusalem, who are missionaries there, that come to evangelize supposedly the Galatian people in Antioch. Peter, under the, the peer pressure, starts disassociating with the Gentiles. Starts eating uh, kosher again and following the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. 
and abandons the Gentile people that he used to associate with. When you think about that, imagine again, like Pat and I are we're hanging out all the time, all the time. Someone, someone comes in from out of town, spiritual authority, tells us that we can't hang out because he's French and I'm, a, you know, and I'm not French, whatever. Could you imagine like, the, the rift it would cause in, in the unity in the church by disassociating over something like this? And it was a racial discrepancy, Gentile versus Jew. So again, um, uh, this is really important because this is what's going on. So what does Paul do? He, in front of everybody there, rebukes Peter and says, Do you not know what you've done and what you're doing? It was a public rebuke for a public leader. Someone who was in the authority position. In chapter 1, sorry, chapter 5, verse 20, we're coming to this in our own letter. It says this, Those who continue in sin, speaking of leaders, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Pretty strong words for those in leadership. No wonder, uh, in James chapter 3, verse 1, the command there is this, not let, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment. Again, for some of you, this might seem heavy-handed, and, uh, but remember this, there's a, a, a scale. There's a scale. And based on the severity of what the person is doing, uh, there's an appropriate response in relation to those sins. For those in, who are uh, embracing sin, or those in church leadership, um, or doing so in the worship gatherings, there's a stiffer rebuke, and it's handled differently than someone who's doing something that's one-off, and it's... Uh, just a, a bad day in the Christian's life. But here's the point we don't want to miss from all this. There's one crucial factor. You see, behind all correction within the church family, there's one key principle. All of it is done with a redemptive heart. The whole purpose of correction is not to condemn, but to restore. All correction is to restore. And to convict, but not condemn. Look at Matthew 18 again. Look at the purpose of correction in this verse. It's on your PowerPoint sheet. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. The purpose is not to create a division, to have them excommunicated from your life or the church's life, you're trying to win them. You're trying to restore them so they can be part of the community and there'd be no issues between them and the people and them and God. That's the whole purpose is to win. Consider Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, also on your PowerPoint. Brethren, if any one of you is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Again, the purpose is to win your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, um, spiritually speaking, and to restore them. And finally, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, Preach the word, be ready in and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You do this with patience. You know, that's the same word that is used in Peter to describe God's patience in the day of Noah, the days of Noah. 
he could have brought judgment on the world in, in, in the days of Noah just like immediately when he saw what was going on. He patiently waited. He patiently waited for 120 years. From the first time he told Noah he was going to flood the earth to the time that it actually happened was about 120 years. That's patience on God's part. Obviously we can't wait 120 years to rebuke one another because we'll be all long gone. But you get the idea. Patience is key in this whole thing as well. And again, you, can, you know why this is so important. If you went after somebody with a fighting spirit and with words that cut and hurt and you lost your cool and you just got extremely angry, there's no redemption even possible in a situation like that. Because I, I know about me, but for you too, I'm guessing that when people come at you like that, it's hard to keep your cool. And you don't want a restoration in those kind of situations. You want to fight back. That's the flesh and as it rises up. We get to, when we get to a point of a fight, we're not trying to help these people be restored anymore. We're trying to beat them. And that's not God's way. But here's the thing, church. There's, there's fruit promised when, we, when correction is received. When correction is received, there's fruit promised to that individual who receives it. This comes from Proverbs. Proverbs 13.18 says this. When people respond to correction, it leads to honor. It leads to honor. In, in chapter 15, verse 31, it leads to wisdom. In chapter 15, verse 32, it leads to understanding that you didn't have before. And in chapter 19, 25, it leads to knowledge so that you know how to respond next time differently. There's fruit promised when we repent and respond to correction. Before I end and go on to the lessons here, I want to, one, want to make one final comment with regards to what Paul says in verse 2 regarding younger women. It's interesting in younger women, in verse 2, he says, do so with all purity. It's the only category in this instruction that has a qualifying statement. When he says, respond to someone as a father, there's no qualifying statement except as a father. Here he says, respond to younger women in all purity. He adds that word. This is important for people who are in spiritual leadership. The, the word for purity has to do with chastity. has to do with chastity. It's to do with sexual purity. Here's the thing. Paul's saying this. Remember, Timothy's a younger man. Remember that in verse 12? He says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct show yourself as a follower of Christ in an in a, in a above reproach way. Now, he's not young like 12 or 13. He's, probably, he's in his 30s. But that's young to be in leadership in that cultural context. It'd be like someone probably in our cultural context being in their 20s and being in leadership. So he's young. So what is he going to be doing? Ministering to young women. And he says, when you approach them in, in, in conflict, and in confrontation, approach them as if they're your sister in this arena. Very, very important. Very important. When you do that, it takes the idea that she's not a potential partner out of your head. 
or someone to go after or someone to be tempted by because she's your sister. And we know that incest is forbidden in the scriptures. That's an abomination. So if you approach every young woman as if she's your sister and you think in those arenas, you're thinking incest. And that's completely off the table in your mindset. But what a protector for people in ministry to view every young woman as a sister within the church. It's a way of maintaining integrity and remaining, way of guarding yourself. And you could see how this would easily come about. A pastor, I think, of, well, you know, skinny jeans, nice hair parked to the side, you know, the nice goatee, comes in 30 years old, comes in and he finds a 24-year-old woman who's kind of fallen into a pattern of gossip. He walks in, you know, 30 years old and sits down with her and starts talking to her. He comes in a place of spiritual authority. He's got confidence. He wants to help her grow spiritually. So he comes alongside her and she sees he has his best intentions in mind. She responds in repentance. Next thing you know, there's some extra feelings involved. And next thing you know, they've crossed the line. And I don't need to convince you that this sort of thing happens all too frequently in the body of Christ amongst leadership. We all know stories of people in spiritual leadership who have fallen prey in the area of sexual immorality. But Proverbs gives us wisdom on how to beat that temptation. Not only are you, you view her as every woman as a sister, but you are, there's another um, wisdom given to us in Proverbs 6. And it should be on your sheet. Please read chapter 6 and verse chapter 7 in your own spare time this week in your devotionals. Chapter 6 and 7 is, is long, but I've summarized the principles from those two chapters on how to avoid falling into sexual sin. First one is this. You're to avoid the flattery. In chapter 6, verse 24, this young man wants this, this woman who's already married. So he basically wants to commit adultery. And she comes to him with flattering words. And that's an enticement for him to fall. If you're in ministry, or even to speak to anybody for that matter, not just in ministry, but especially ministry in the context, but any man, if a woman who's married or someone you, you shouldn't be with according to scriptures is flattering, avoid the words of flattery. Avoid the look. In, in 625, it talks about how her eyes basically capture this guy. Gives him that, that, that sort of look that is enticing to a man. He says, avoid the look. Have nothing to do with it. Avoid the thoughts. In chapter 625, this guy is basically encapsulated by this woman. And he's basically saying this, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's in, that's in Corinthians chapter 10. I think it's 2 Corinthians. Or maybe it's chapter, yeah, I think it's chapter 10. Don't quote me on that. But it's in Corinthians for sure. <laughs> but take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Avoid the thoughts about this woman who's off the table for you. Avoid the rendezvous. In chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, this guy's intentionally leaving his home and going to where she lives. He's intentionally going to her corner of the street and kind of like, intentionally setting himself up in a place where he's likely going to run into her. He's basically setting up the plan, so to speak. Avoid the rendezvous. 
avoid the touch. In 7.13, she reaches out, gives him embrace, and he falls for that right away. And finally, avoid the house. <laughs> After he goes on the rendezvous, she comes out in the street, meets him, and says, by the way, my husband's gone. He's out of town. He won't be back till tomorrow at midnight. Why don't you come over? I've decorated my bed with flowers and all sorts of uh, incense and all sorts of things. You're going to love it there. And he goes to the house. Proverbs, full of wisdom, outside of Timothy, and how to treat younger women as sisters in the ministry. And this applies to all men as well who are in that same similar situation. Is that enough? Enough to, I think, spark conversation? And uh, let's have a time of discussion after I give you these three lessons. Oops, sorry. This is not... I trigger finger and I went to lesson three. Lesson number one. In confronting sin, spiritual leaders are to remember to approach each member as if they were their own immediate family. Again, really important. If you look at every person, well, I'll just use myself as an example. If I look at all of you as my father, as my father, a brother, a sister, a mother, and I think of the closeness and intimacy of that relationship when it's operating the way God intended, I'm going to come at you with a different attitude and a different manner than as if you were a stranger to me. I don't go to my father with an attitude of spiritual authority. I don't go to my mother with a spiritual authority. As a brother, I see you as an equal. If you are my sister, I see you as an equal in my family. So there's no, that, that's a, it's a great correction in terms of your attitude and manner in which you approach people. And again, this is a good principle for not only leadership, but those of you in, who aren't in leadership as well. Because not just leaders who are to correct. In Galatians 6, 1, those of you who are spiritual restore such a one. Matthew 18, if your brother or sister offends, you go and talk to him in private. So there's an expectation on you as well. If you go to each person in here, as if you go to an older man, if you're a younger woman, um, in that way, you treat him as a, a father. An older man looking at a younger woman, treat him as a, 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 a sister, and so on. You're going to put yourself in a very safe place emotionally and spiritually going to talk to that person. Lesson number two. As it would be done in a healthy family, all correction is to be done with a redemptive purpose in mind and not in a state of out-of-control anger or condemnation. Matthew 18, you're to win your brother, you're to win your sister. Galatians 6, 1, you're to restore such a one. That's the attitude of the Christian and the leader going to confront sin. Again, if you get to a place where you're emotionally out of control in confrontation, both in a family and in the church family, Paul makes it clear. That's foreign to God. That irate type of correction, that's foreign to God. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Right? In the biological family. And we're not to exasperate those in the church either, as spiritual leaders. If you're looking to fight... Redemption isn't going to be the outcome. 
Finally, not all correction slash rebuke is to be handled identically within the church family. It's different for a lay person than a leader. It's different if it's a one-off versus a pattern. It's different if it's outside the, the, the church service versus inside. And so on. But here's the key. In every single thing we looked, it all fits the context of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. And this is important to remember as well. When Paul corrected Peter in a public way, he never lost his cool. He never talked to him without redemption in mind or a spirit of trying to win him over. He didn't come unglued. He was very stern, very straight to the point, but he fulfilled the, uh, the mandate of 1 Timothy 5. When Jesus went into the temple, however that would have looked, would he be borderline close to maybe going there? Maybe, probably. <laughs> he didn't break and sin. He didn't sin in the way he handled that situation. But it was an in-house issue. They're in the temple. They're in the temple. And these people were calling themselves followers of God. And he took it seriously in that moment. Again, things to think about as we process 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2.